Welcome to this week's episode of the People Podcast. Are you in human resources, recruiting professionally, or an entrepreneur growing a team? This is the podcast for you. We are going to bring you all of the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to take your workforce to the next level. Implementing the tips and know-how will enable you to create and keep a world-class workforce. Here is your host, Jesse Tinsley. This week's episode is brought to you by Zor.ai. And here's a quick word from our sponsor. Imagine how your company would grow if your candidate experience earned a 99% approval rating. Well, to get to 99%, you need the three best letters in recruitment technology, XOR. Zor's text bots, chat bots, and audio bots increased IKEA's candidate conversion rate 455%. Zor decreases candidate drop-off rates, improves your candidate experience, and collects analytics for future strategies. To learn more, check out Zor.ai. That's XOR.ai. This episode is with Lisa Orb Austin. Lisa has a PhD in counseling psychology and has her own company where she basically works on dealing with imposter syndrome in the workplace. This is one of my favorite episodes. Definitely worth a listen. Check it out. Let me know your thoughts and comments below. Lisa, thanks so much for joining me on the People Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, my pleasure. And just to dive right into it, maybe you can just share a little bit about yourself and your background and we can dive into the rest of the episode from there. Sure. I'm a psychologist and executive coach in New York City. My practice focuses on career transition issues and career advancement issues for high potential managers and executives. Been in practice over a decade. I also do consulting work, DEI and leadership consulting for organizations. And I have a book coming out in April on imposter syndrome. Awesome. That, that's really interesting. And, and maybe you can dive into a little bit about imposter syndrome and kind of what, what inspired you to write about that book specifically. Sure. So imposter syndrome is the experience um, largely found in people who are really high achieving, where they feel that they're they're a fraud, they're incompetent, they're a fraud, that, and they're going to be found out in an, at any moment. And so as a result of that, to compensate, they typically overwork. And so it's beyond hard work. They kind of go above and beyond, way above and beyond, and often leads to burnout. So it's this experience of feeling like no matter what your accomplishments are, they're not real, that you either got them in, you know, by convincing other people that you're good at something you're not good at, or it's been luck. So that experience that you see in a lot of high achieving people. And I think I was approached by the publisher to write the book, but I think largely because this has been the, the mainstay of my practice that I have largely worked with people who struggled with imposter syndrome. I've had it myself. So it's a population I love working with because they work super hard and freeing them from that experience of working beyond what is necessary and learning how to just work hard and not necessarily work to the point where they burn out consistently is like my greatest joy um, and unleashing their ability to kind of internalize their their skills and their accomplishments. It's such a beautiful thing when they can finally take in who, how amazing they are. It's just an exciting thing. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. And, and what's like, how does this transition over into the workplace for like executive, like high performing executives that are maybe really early in their career or in anybody in like a very fast growth startup or anything like that? What, what are you seeing like in terms of like correlation there? Is it more prevalent with like men or women or like? The stat is that o- over 70% of people have experienced imposter syndrome in, in some point in their life. So you see it everywhere. Um, I think that, you know, what I, 
But I see more in the startup culture and, and those places is that in essence, startup culture feeds imposter syndrome and it makes it worse. You know, the constant expectation of working, the, the things are never good enough. Things are because people are trying to hit a particular mark and move to a particular goal with the company. It kind of pulls on everything impostery in someone's experience. So I think it can be really difficult environments for people to work in. They often excel in them, but they can, it, there's a, there's a toll and a cost because it, you know, it just is too much. So, you know, you see it everywhere, but I think some environments make it worse. Got it. The name of your name of your book is Own Your Greatness and it's out April 14th. Is that correct? Yep. Cool. Awesome. I'll definitely put it in the show notes and we'll definitely have to have a follow-up uh, episode to talk more about that in, in depth. In terms of what we we're going to talk about, I think the main focus today was to focus on like DNI initiatives. So maybe you can just dive into like what your thoughts are, what can be better in the workplace, and and then we can continue the conversation from there. Sure. So, I mean, I, I guess one of, one of the things I, I guess want to talk to, talk with you about in this in this particular conversation was around DEI. And I think one of the things that I see as a consultant is a lot of pushback against DEI initiatives and and kind of feeling like there's not much we can do about it. It is what it is. We're doing our best. And I think there are a lot of really simple ways to kind of go about making some organizational changes that can help to kind of increase the amount of diversity in a workforce. And it doesn't have to be these massive initiatives. So I, th- I guess I wanted to talk about like things like that and uh, kind of lowering the, the wall that goes up around resistance around creating more inclusive environments. Totally. What's some like the resistance that you, you get from organizations or, or people within organizations? Out of curiosity, what are like some of the more common ones? I think that, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I think oftentimes these biases begin from people assuming that particular genders, races, sexual orientations, really, like that they're not suited for this particular type of work. I mean, I've been in workshops and in trainings that I've run that where people will blatantly say it, like women don't belong here. I mean, pretty out, egregious things that you'd imagine people don't say in 2019. They do say them and they do believe them. And so I do think there's a, you know, there's an inherent explicit bias going on, but I think that there are also ways in which even with explicit bias, you can make it very difficult for people to be bi- you know, biased in their workplaces if you demand certain things, especially your HR organization and, and your executive team demands more diversity. There are ways to kind of push against that really strongly. Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely a systemic issue across many orgs in different industries and I'm curious, what are some of the suggestions you have to organizations to become more diverse and like inclusive as a workforce or even just in their hiring practices in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when you've got a situation where, you know, we were talking about this, and I think it's really commonly known that you can see bias happening in very simple ways, like from resumes where people can see a certain name and assume a certain race or certain gender and make certain you know, qualitative or, you know, or sometimes even quantitative like judgments about that particular person and say that they're not necessarily a fit and and remove them from the pool. So things like blind resumes, being able to submit a pool and people hate this. They don't, you know, because I think inherently people want to work. The reason why people interview, it's like one of the worst ways to choose candidates. But one of the reasons why they do that is because they want to select people that they like, that they feel a connection to, that they feel similarity with, and it's dangerous. And so I do think people hate the idea of blind resumes because they feel like they lose data that, you know, would help them make a decision. Decisions that I think sometimes are inherently biased. So I do think like, you know, thinking about blind resumes, thinking about ways in which, you know, we evaluate candidates that 
leave too much opening for bias where there's only one person evaluating candidates, there isn't a team, there isn't some kind of like rubric to evaluate that particular candidate where it's just totally subjective. You just really leave yourself open to bias. Definitely, especially in positions that are like rather binary. I feel like if you're an engineer, it's, it doesn't really matter where you went to school or <laughs> where you've worked as long as you're good at the tasks that you're performing, right? So. Right. You don't need to see if they went to Stanford or Harvard or, or wherever. It's irrelevant to that position in most cases. And I think I totally agree with you, but oftentimes the hiring managers don't necessarily feel like oh, it. Oh, no, I, yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen it myself. It, it definitely is yeah. uh, quite... I, they do have preferences, right? I've, I've been in rooms where they say, I only take people from this school and that school. And I'm like, oh my God, can you hear yourself? Like, you know, yeah. like, this, is how, this is how bias starts. Even though you think it's okay to say, you know, you only take people from this school because you think that school is elite. That's how we begin to do this stuff. And what, what, you know, most of the research finds is that some of the best ways to select candidates are with work samples. And if you can rely more on work samples and less on your personal judgment about somebody's experience, you know, I think it helps you to kind of get away from some of the more biased, you know, biased practices, but you have to develop these ideas for exercises and, and be able to grade them, have multiple graders, like really think about how you kind of can remove some of the bias from the process. Definitely. And I think even just going to an elite university to begin with, you've had to have some type of, uh, in most cases, some type of uh, privilege to have gotten there in the first place. So right. even though it's just one indicator, you've had to have a lot of uh, help or a lot of hard work to get there in the first place. And it, that's not yep. mm-hmm. yeah, access to, to different All like, kinds of things. Yeah. SAT prep or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And so. A lot of people that are under under um, references, like connections, opportunities to interview with alumni that other people wouldn't get. Like you know, behind the story, there's all these other layers. I mean, we just saw this with this with with the college admission scandal. We saw these things are not clean. There, they are no way an indicator of someone being smarter than another person whatsoever. Yep, and, and so I think there's actually some really interesting things going on in the space. I think like I actually interviewed. Uh, a few episodes ago, Alien Learner interviewing .io. They're basically making it completely anonymous when when engineers do tests. So you don't know their name, their background, pretty much nothing about them. And it's just very cut and dry. So I think there's a lot of interesting like automation and AI. What do you think about like AI and like with the future of like automation and the recruiting process with like blind resumes? Do you think that would help DNI efforts or, or hurt it systemically? I'm just curious. I think it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of the stuff coming out about AI is like all of this discussion around it reducing bias. But if you think about, you know, if the people who code these things are particular races or genders, the bias is inherent in their experience. So what they're finding with a lot of, you know, AI experiences, even with, you know, HR functions, is that they are particularly racist. You know, and people are like, how can AI be racist? Well, the the AI itself isn't racist. It was coded to be racist. So they are finding all kinds of things that, you know, they can't distinguish black faces from animals. Like these things are really scary and problematic, right? And then sort of like, you know, the expressions on black people's faces and how they're being interpreted, right? So all of this stuff becomes super, super dangerous because racial bias is even inherent in coding. I mean, there's been a ton of now data to, to suggest that you can even see it in this. It's not a, AI is not a way to get away from bias. When people are inherently biased, they do things that create more bias, even just unconsciously. It'll be interesting to see how it, how it plays out, I think, just 
given that that's the way that it seems like recruiting is going like empirically in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's definitely a conversation for hopefully some brighter future in terms of uh, sourcing more diverse applicant pool, but also obviously I think there's some, uh, some cautionary studies obviously in, in research. So I think there's a lot of work to be done just in the space in general. Yes, absolutely. And then we shouldn't blindly trust it just because it says it's unbiased because it says it's unbiased because it says it's AI, it takes the bias out of it. No, there was somebody who actually coded that to determine what is a smile versus what is a frown versus what is disagreement. Like, you have to understand all of that is nuanced and socialized. And we are so, you know, we are socialized with racialized lenses. So I think it's really important to understand these things are not bias free when someone's interpreting data. Definitely. I, th- I think it depends on, on obviously what it is. It sounds like you're maybe talking about computer vision. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think blind resumes is a different story, right? When someone's looking yeah. at a blind resume, and yeah, they're, yeah. Just, they're just removing content. That's very different than someone doing a video interview and then their video yeah, yeah. is right. by some kind of algorithm. Totally, totally. That's a different. very different thing than just blind resumes. But yes, I think blind resumes are a really safe way to safe bet. I think, you know, thinking about ways in which people are sourcing from, like one of the things that data says too is that in homogenous environments, you shouldn't rely on referrals for new candidates, right? Because what are you going to do? You're going to create more homogenous environment because you're just going to get more people that look and are like the people that are already in the organization. So referrals should be less of an emphasized thing. And in a lot of organizations, referrals are very central to their functioning in terms of HR. Um, people are actually you know, compensated for referrals. There's a whole system that goes on. But in essence, that also sometimes protects the homogenous nature of the organization. Right. I, I think at least... For- organizations that are they're larger that not to speak for anyone i think it comes down to like a risk factor not to do with like the dni itself but just simply when you're getting referrals you know if john is good or jane and they say that this person is good that you're getting a very similar outcome whereas if you interviewed somebody even if you like think that they're gonna be great you already know that john or jane is great and therefore if they're saying that they're great it's a little bit safer of a play. So how do you get away from that, that stereotype of like, because I think a lot of companies, especially in the, like the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. refer, rely on referrals pretty heavily. Yeah. How do you think companies can get away from that like stigma of like risk, yeah. I guess? I mean, I think when I, when I think about it, I think, you know, it's also easy to source, right? It's a lot less expensive to source a new candidate from a referral, right? Because it doesn't cost you anything to someone. Well, except for whatever you're paying that person. Yeah, 1000 to 5000 Right, 1000 bucks. As opposed to sometimes what people can suggest, it can cost way, like half someone's pay. It can be really expensive. Yep. But I do think it's around kind of creating these pipelines that you have access to, that you have relationships with that are diverse, right? That are not, you know, the same pipeline you always go to. You know, so if you recruit at certain schools, try different schools, try different opportunities, look at different populations, like, you know, really kind of be curious about looking at, you know, schools that have a greater diversity to them and, and recruiting there. Because I think you're never, you know, you're never going to know what's outside of your scope, your kind of narrow scope, unless you kind of venture out there and take risks. And I think when your pools are diversified, when your workforce is diversified, the referrals matter, like getting a referral doesn't matters less because you know, it's going to pull a diverse candidate. It's when your pool is not diversified that, that the referrals are problematic, right? It's not that referrals inherently are problematic, but when you have a non-diverse, you know, workforce, it is. So it's like, you know, thinking about sort of what are the ways in which you can, you know, rethink the way that you kind of recruit to your organization. I know that right now it's super tough, like the market's super thin because, you know, the economy's doing well. So people struggle to source. Like, you know, I have 
clients who, you know, struggle with their HR partners to get enough candidates to really make a good decision about a qualified candidate. Definitely. But I do think it's worth kind of like, you know, when I have a client who has a great HR partner and they're killing it, like, you know, they're just so impressed by sort of how they source, but they, they're really good at sourcing really diverse candidates are really good at sourcing, like, you know, deep and finding someone talking to people really, you know, getting them excited about the opportunity, even if they're not looking like, you know, to be someone who's recruiting, you have to have a diverse set of skills and be able to utilize them in those moments, especially when the market's thin. Yeah, definitely. I I don't even know if it's a sourcing issue. I think there's plenty of qualified and great candidates. I think, I think that the problem right now is really engagement, right? Everyone's gainfully employed. Employers are making the extra effort to make sure that people are happy and retention is a big focus as well as learning and development. So I think that uh, definitely a lot more can be done, but I think that it's really, and obviously there's a short, a narrow focus on certain roles and there's obviously a lesser candidate pool for DNI in general in certain like sectors. So definitely a systemic issue, like from a macro, macro right. basis, sure. but like, so what, what do you think companies can do to do a better job to be like, like inclusive and, and improve their hiring process and just have an overall more diverse organization, especially like, let, let's say you're an enterprise company, a thousand plus, 10,000 plus people. Where does that start? How does that get started at one of those organizations that maybe wasn't focused on it until the last five, 10 years? And they're empirically very, very non-diverse. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to start at the top. I mean, you know, you can recruit as many, diverse candidates as you want, if they don't feel welcome, if they don't feel like the culture supports their advancement, they're not going to stay. And although, you know, yes, there's been a talk about a lot of companies really trying to spend on retention, you know, there's been still this ongoing sort of feelings for for a lot of diverse candidates that that these environments are not welcoming to them. So I'm not sure who they're attempting to retain, but oftentimes I I don't hear a great improvement in diverse candidates and, and the data doesn't suggest that they're feeling like people are trying to retain them. So I do feel like it's really important to kind of like make sure that there is a significant representation in senior levels of diverse candidates. Like if you don't see anybody who has advanced to the organization is in in senior level roles, you know that you're there because you're going to fill a diversity quota and you're not going to stay and you're not going to advance. So I do think it's really important if you believe that you want to diversify your workforce, that you do it from the top down and that that the idea is that, you know, people can advance in your organization and, and there are people that are similar to them there and they're not the only ones. And there's a significant, you know, commitment to that, whether it's creating affinity groups and places where people feel like they can talk about the struggles they're having within the organization for their particular experiences, or whether it's having a mentor at the organization that has, you know, succeeded in this career and, is similar to your representation and you feel like can really get it. But I think it's, it's sort of really creating the, you know, systemic markers and supports within the organization to make sure that the candidates are retained and do advance. And if there are issues that they can be brought up and people listen rather than deny or pretend like it's not happening. Like, I think that's another issue is like, you know, in diversifying a workforce stuff comes up. Um, and if your HR can't handle the conversations in a way that somebody feels safe, they're going to go, you know, they're going to leave. So it has to be an organization that's really committed to this all the way around. And it sounds like a, a lot of companies, I think, are starting to do this, right? Starting from like the board of directors on down through the E-team, trying to be more diverse and inclusive in general. This is fantastic, Lisa. I really appreciate your time. And uh, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to learn more about DNI or reach out to you for consulting or learn more about your book? What's the best way for people to reach out to you? 
Sure. On my website, you can feel free to reach out. It's uh, www.dynamictransitionsllp.com. Awesome. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. And, and thanks so much for joining me on the People Podcast. Thank you. Awesome. All right. That's the end of this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and like our channel so you can see more awesome content coming your guys' way. This week's episode has now come to an end, but our content doesn't end here. Head over to jessetinsley.com where you can find more valuable resources to hire and keep the ultimate workforce. That's jessetinsley.com.